you haven't met, my name is uh, Paul. We're actually um, smaller than we normally are because uh, last week we farewelled uh, 35 people who went off to start Saturday night by the bridge and we kicked off uh, last night. It was a great night. Um, Jesus was honoured. Um, we praised God. We heard the word. Um, and a few new people joined us. So give thanks for that. It's always hard when we um, start a new congregation because we feel a loss of relationships. So uh, please do uh, pray for Saturday night um, and pray for each other as we adapt to a new church family here at 6.30 as well. Uh, if you just joined us, we are in half of this sermon series on 2 Samuel. So please grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page 220. Let me pray. Lord God, we've sung already tonight of, of your greatness. Uh, we've sung of your, your mercy and your grace that you've shown to us in Christ. Uh, we've sung of the, the return of our Lord Jesus. And Father, we, we long to, to know you better each day until the day that our Lord Jesus returns. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your spirit. Uh, please, Lord, please teach us tonight. Please uh, transform our minds, warm our hearts. Uh, help us to have a, a bigger picture of Jesus because of your word tonight. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Tonight I'm going to grapple with the question, uh, what do you look for in a leader? Uh, what type of person do you choose to follow? So it's an interesting question, as I thought about this week, because I reckon that Australians, like English people, they're pretty autonomous. They don't like following anybody. They don't like being told what to do. They don't like identifying themselves with any one particular team or one particular person. But just put that aside for a moment. If you were called to follow somebody, as we all are, what type of person would you choose to follow? Who would you submit to? What type of Prime Minister do you want? What type of Premier of State do you want? What type of boss do you want to work for? What type of Church Minister do you want? What do you look for in, in a leader? Are you dazzled by intelligence or charisma? Uh, the entrepreneur, the, the wit, uh, the humour? I tell you what I look for in a leader. Uh, the one thing I really look for in a leader is integrity. Integrity. They're people who, who keep their word and do what they said. They're the people who make promises and, and then keep those promises. You know, yesterday we all voted in a local election and I hope that you weren't swayed by the glossy publications. I hope you actually looked at what they promised and then see whether they kept those promises. See, I think integrity is the most important thing as you follow somebody or you submit to somebody. It's the same in any relationship, isn't it? Any friendship. 
you know, once the, the trust is broken, once people don't keep their word or, or they lie to you and you think they've got no integrity, it's really, really hard to keep respecting that friendship and build that friendship again. People often say to me, uh, Paul, I, I, wish I, I wish I had your faith. Or, you know, you've got amazing trust. And my response is always, it's not about the quantity of my faith. It's not about me, it's about the God that I trust in. Because he has shown himself to be completely trustworthy and completely reliable and he keeps his promise. He's a man of integrity. Our God is full of integrity. And that's why it's easy to follow God. Because he does what he says. He keeps his promises. If you just joined us, we're in 2 Samuel and God has made a promise that he will, he will make David his king. And God has kept that promise. David is now king over all of Israel. He's captured Jerusalem. He's brought the ark into the city. And in 2 Samuel 7, he's made a great promise to David that his throne and his name will, will, will reign for all eternity. Uh, but the question is, what kind of leader is David going to be? He's supposed to be a man after God's heart. He's supposed to, to lead and to rule like God would. Is David a man, a king that, that you'd be willing to follow? Let me rephrase that question. Because we're not Israelites and we don't live in Jerusalem. Remember David is a forerunner to Jesus. Let me rephrase the question. Is Jesus a king or a ruler that you'd be willing to follow? And if so, why? What is it about King David and then King Jesus that you'll say, yes, that's the man that I'm willing to follow. I'll let him lead me. Let me tell you two things tonight. Firstly, God's conquering king rules with integrity. God's conquering king rules with integrity. See, wars are not a 20th century phenomenon. People are always been fighting. And just because David has conquered Jerusalem doesn't mean they're going to live in peace. He is surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by people who, who don't like him being king. They hate the fact that David is king. And they attack him and they war against him. They rally the troops to bring David down. Now look at chapter, chapter 8 verse 6. It's really the key verse to this whole chapter. End of verse 6. I think it's on your screen. Uh, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The same at the end of verse 14. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. That's the key verse of this chapter. Uh, God's king will be victorious no matter how fierce the opposition, no matter how many weapons they use or how subtle they are, God's king is going to win. Why? Because verse 6, because the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God, the, the all-powerful one, has given victory to David in every battle. And so chapter 8 is just a catalogue of victories. They're not chronological, they're thematic. I said verse 1, in the course of time, King David defeated the Philistines, the arch enemies, the, you know, the joker to David's Batman. Uh, he defeated them, he struck them down and subdued them. Uh, the repeated word in this chapter is actually that word defeated. It means to strike down, to smite, to obliterate, to, to destroy, to purge, to get rid of. And time and again it says, King David defeated, King David defeated, King David conquered, King David struck them down. He struck down the Philistines, verse 1. He struck down the Moabites, verse 2. David defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. 
Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? Russian roulette, are you in the, the, the first two thirds or the second third? It sounds even cruel if you know your Bibles, because David is actually related to the Moabites through Ruth. It sounds cruel because the Moabites actually gave David's parents asylum, showed them kindness, and yet David kills them. Why? Because the Moabites hate God, and they hate God's king, and they hate God's people, and so they must be destroyed. At verse 3, he fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob. At verse 5, he fought the Aramaeans. They've been the enemies since the Exodus. Uh, verse 5, David struck down 22,000 of them and he put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Down to verse 13, David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites as they attempted to invade Israel. As you read this chapter, you're supposed to think nobody, no one, no army, no matter how big they are, no matter how powerful they are, can defeat God's king. He's always going to win. His kingdom will reign over all the earth. You see, the battle belongs to God. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And my question for you is, which team would you rather be on? Which army would you rather fight with? King David's team? or with the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Aramaeans. You see, I'm sure the Philistines thought that they were really clever and I'm sure they, they sounded impressive and they thought, we can topple this king and it would be tempted if you were living back in that time to side with them and think, wow, they are really clever and, and they're very persuasive. But if you'd been with the Philistines, you'd have been struck down. If you'd been on David's team, you'd have been victorious. Who are you going to side with? King David or the enemies? I'd rather be with David. Look how, look how it's described in verse 15. David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all people. He, he reigned in righteousness and in justice. He does what every godly king was supposed to do, ruling with integrity, providing rest, treating people with justice and doing what is right. Who are you going to follow, King David or the enemies? Uh, please don't rip these verses out of context. I read a commentary this week on this chapter. And they took verse 6, uh, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And this commentary said, you know, if you're on, on, on God's side... God's going to give you victory whatever circumstances you come across. Whatever he brings into your path, he'll give you victory over it. But, friends, we're not King David. We are not God's conquering king. We're not God's chosen king. Who is the king that we're supposed to identify with? King Jesus. Who was the king who, when he stepped into the world conquered all his enemies of disease and of sin and of death who was the one who conquered Satan on the cross made a public spectacle of him triumphant over him on the cross Colossians 2 
Who is the one who has conquered even that, that greatest enemy called death and risen from the grave? King Jesus. So whose side are you going to be on? I'm sure for some of you, the world is very attractive. The enemies of God, they sound so intelligent, they sound so wise, they sound so clever, and there are so many of them. That's the army called the world or the enemies of God. And I'm going to warn you tonight, if you side with the world and you keep on trusting in the world, yes, God's king will will smite you. He will strike you. He will destroy you. It's not a pleasant warning, is it? But the Bible says, trust in the King Jesus. Be on his team. Be on his team. Be on the right team. Because he's worth trusting, because he will lead you with integrity doing what is right and just for all his people. God's conquering king will rule with integrity. We're going to spend more time on chapter 9 because God's compassionate king will show God's kindness. God's compassionate king will show God's kindness. I don't know whether you have ever made a promise to somebody and never kept that promise. I've done it I'm sure we've all done it. Uh, we haven't kept our word. See, to understand chapter 9, we've got to understand that the 20, 20 years before this chapter was written, before this event happened, uh, Jonathan entered a, a covenant or an agreement with David. It's on your screen, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 13. This is Jonathan speaking, uh, David's best mate. He said, But if my father Saul is inclined to harm you, May the Lord deal with me, be ever so severely, if I don't let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And don't ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Friends, this is, this is a covenant it's not just words, it's not just a piece of paper, it's not just a contract, it's a covenant. It's like a marriage covenant where the husband says to the wife, I will always love you no matter what happens. That's just not a piece of paper. You know, when people are cohabiting, they sometimes say, oh, why bother getting married? It's just a piece of paper. No, marriage is more than a piece of paper. Marriage is actually a solemn promise, a solemn vow, that good times and bad, you will not walk away from this person. I'll always love you, whether I feel like it or not. Uh, That's a covenant, and that is the kind of promise that, that David entered into with Jonathan. It's there on your screen. Do not ever cut off your kindness. My family, verse 15. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies. And that's chapter 8. God has cut off all the enemies. The Philistines and the Moabites and the Arameans and the Edomites. The question is, will David show kindness to Jonathan's family? Uh, who is Jonathan's family? We've met him already in chapter 4. It's on the screen again. 2 Samuel 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan being killed came to Jezreel. And his nurse picked him up and fled, but as she heard to leave, he fell and became crippled. 
and his name was Mephibosheth. I've been passing that all week. Mephibosheth. It just means that one who scatters shame. And so when, when David enters this contract with Jonathan, uh, the question is, will he keep his words? Will King David show kindness to this crippled man? Now, I want you to do the work as the Bible is read to us right now. But you are not David. You like to think that you're the good guy. You like to think that you're the king. But you're not David. Who are you in this story? And who is showing you kindness? Think about that as a, as a Bible reference. 2 Samuel chapter 9 on the Bible will have. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul's who might be show kindness to Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant. Is there no one still left of the house of Saul's who might be show God's kindness? There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? He is at the house of Mekir, son of Emil, in Lozbar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. So what kind of king is uh, David going to be? We're looking at a compassionate king who who shows God's kindness. Let me ask you some questions about Mephibosheth. What does Mephibosheth deserve? What does he deserve? He, He is from the line of Saul. He's from the old regime. Just like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Aramaeans, what does he deserve? He deserves to be struck down and destroyed that's why in verse 7 he comes trembling don't be afraid David says he comes to the palace he's been summoned to the palace he expects to be executed 
whenever a new king came in, he'd always execute the old regime. He expects to be executed. He deserves death. Now what can, what can Mephibosheth do to help himself? Look at verse 3. End of verse 3. There's still a son of Jonathan and he is he's crippled in both feet. End of verse 13. And he was crippled in both feet. It's pretty clear that this guy is utterly, utterly helpless. In that culture, if you were crippled, you would sit in the gutter and you would beg for your food and you would beg for your money. You'd be completely dependent, an outcast and a nobody. What can he do for himself? Absolutely nothing. And what does Mephibosheth get? Verse 1. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Verse 3. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Verse 7. Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness. He deserves nothing, but he gets kindness. The word is hesed. It means steadfast love. It means grace, abundant grace, unfathomable love, undeserving love. He deserves nothing, but he is shown utter, utter kindness and grace. Uh, we think of kindness as that sort of that, that weak, limp-wristed, pleasant act. Kindness is when you show somebody or you perform an act of goodness towards somebody expecting absolutely nothing in return. And that's what Mephibosheth gets. He gets God's kindness. Completely undeserved. Can't pay anything back. Now why does David do that? Uh, verse 1. Uh, for Jonathan's sake. Uh, for the sake of the covenant. For the sake of the promise. For the sake of the word that he spoke. And what's the result? Verse 7 is a key verse. He gets protection. Don't be afraid. You know, he expected death. He expected he struck down, but you received grace. So don't be, don't be afraid. He gets protection. He gets provision. Verse 7. I will restore to you all the land that belongs to your grandfather Saul. A great inheritance. But most of all, he gets a position. He's no longer begging, he's no longer groveling, he's sitting at the table like a son. Verse 7, I love verse 7, end of verse 7. You will always eat at my table. It's there again in verse 10. You will always eat at my, at my table. It's there at the end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table like one of the king's sons. It's there again in verse 13. Because he always ate at the king's table. You see this cripple, helpless, wretched, utterly, utterly dependent on everybody else and he's carried to the king's table and treated like a son and treated like a daughter. That's the King David, protecting his life, restoring his inheritance, saving him from the shadow of death and preparing a table for him. Taking him from the gutter and bringing him to that place of honour at the king's table and feasting with the king. B.B. Warfield was a, a famous theologian. Uh, in 1876, he, he married his young sweetheart, Annie. And they went on a honeymoon uh, to Germany. 
uh, it was a walking tour and during the honeymoon uh, they were out walking as this thunderstorm hit no one really knows what happened she was struck by something and she was left an invalid and for 39 long years B.B. Uh, Warfield cared for his wife it said that he tried not to be a partner for more than two hours he wouldn't travel overseas he said he just cared for her unconditionally and one of his students comments that when they were together uh, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her what could Annie do? absolutely nothing, she was an invalid uh, what did her husband do? he cared for her, he showed her kindness, unconditional love why? because of the contract, because of the promise, I'll always love you uh, now why does Mephibosheth get to eat with the king? because God, God's king, shows him kindness now are you making the links? as you sit there, are you making the links? please don't do what one commentary did and said therefore we need to show kindness to cripples that's not what this story is about David is God's compassionate king David shows God's kindness who is our David? who is David's greater son? the Lord Jesus Christ now how has King Jesus showed his kindness to you? he's taken you a lame cripple who is sitting in the gutter utterly utterly helpless and he's brought you to the king's table he sat you at the feet of the king feasting with the king now why has he done that? because of his kindness because of his grace because of his steadfast love for you now who are you? And see, I reckon our, our natural tendency is to think, oh, I'm, I'm David, I'm the good guy, I like helping people. You're not David. You are, uh, forgive me, but you're a wretched, filthy sinner, like Mephibosheth, sitting in a gutter, lame, helpless, utterly undeserving. And yet God's reached down to you and picked you up and sat you at the king's table. See, we deserve nothing. We, we come to the king he calls us to the king we deserve death we deserve to be smote that's the word struck down destroyed but he gives us feasting look at these words from Romans chapter 5 you see at just the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly verse 8 God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us. And verse 10 For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? And who are you? You were a sinner and you were powerless and you were God's enemy while you were sinners God saw nothing in you or me that made us think wow that's a great person that's a great choice to be my son and feast at my table he didn't see us and think you know oh, it would be great to have him at my table a great dinner party great companion he didn't look at you and think you know with a great man a great woman and a great preacher and a great son of God he didn't choose you because you were wonderful while you were sinners 
while you were powerless, while you were God's enemies, he reached down to you and he took you out of the gutter and, and he gave you legs to walk on and he picked you up and he carried you to his table and he sat you down at the feast, feasting with the king, feasting with the son. Why? Because of his kindness. Because of his love. And this chapter is supposed to help you to, to magnify your Lord Jesus Christ and to minimise you. Because we're just wretched sinners. We're not the most important people in the world. One person at this church said that in a church they used to go to, they went for six long years and every week they were told that they were wonderful and how good they were and how marvellous they were and they could achieve anything for God. And they left every week feeling a failure. And they came to this church and they were told every week that they were a sinner but God loved them and had saved them through his grace and they said that was utterly, utterly liberating you've got to understand my friends that we are wretched sinners we're not perfect but just like the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners that, that Jesus sat down and ate with and feasted with so you and I can be lifted to the table to feast with the king often marry couples and they often choose amazing grace especially the people who've never been to church and it goes amazing grace has sweet the sound who saved a wretch like me and people often say I don't like the second line those who don't know Jesus Christ don't like the second line because they don't like being called wretches those who know Jesus know that we are wretches we're Mephibosheths lame, crippled, helpless, deserving death but God has lifted it to, to the table. Let me say, you will never understand God's love for you unless you see how undeserving you are. I, I was thinking this week, do you think, uh, do you think Mephibosheth ever resented feasting with the king? Do you think there's a day when he thought, actually, I'd rather go back to the gutter. I'd rather go and beg for my food than, than have this lavish feast. And you know, look around and I see men and women who have tasted and feasted with the King. Men and women who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe he died for them, and yet some, for some bizarre reason, we make choices that basically say, I'd rather go back to the gutter. I don't want to feast with the King anymore. Why do we choose to go back to the gutter? I think it's two things. It's time and it's attitude. We just don't make time. We don't make time to enjoy the feast, to focus on Jesus. It's like any sort of family meal, isn't it? You know, The families that eat together, they stick together. They sit around the table and they talk and they build a relationship. And if you're going to feast with, with King Jesus, I'm going to urge you, please, daily, every opportunity, focus on him. Focus on his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his hesed love, his, his steadfast love and his kindness. Know him better. Give him the time. And then you'll keep going back for more. But the other thing is attitude. You've got to have the right attitude towards your king. What was Mephibosheth's attitude? Verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What's your servant, Paul, your servant, whoever your name is, 
that you should reach down and notice a dead dog like me. I'm nothing, and you are everything. Who would you choose to follow? Why do you find it hard to follow King Jesus? He's conquered everything. He rules with integrity. He's shown compassion and kindness at that cross. He's lifted you to the table. And I'm just pleading with you to feast with him day by day with the attitude saying, I'm just your servant, I'm just a dead dog. Thank you for, for allowing me to feast with you. We're going to listen to a song now. Uh, please use this song as a, a reflection time to the words are directly from 2 Samuel 9 to think about where you are with your King Jesus and whether you need to be humbled whether you need to have a right attitude and think I'm not David I'm just Mephibosheth and thank you for carrying me to the table <laughs>